Welcome to Ed Council Insights. This is our podcast to provide insights into new legal developments in the Missouri education community. If you are a Missouri school leader, school board member, or any public educational decision maker in Missouri, well, you are in the right place. Today, we're going to be talking about a Missouri Supreme Court case that was handed down earlier this week regarding responses to requests for records under Missouri's Sunshine Law. Now, there have been a number of media accounts uh, about the decision uh, involving records requests made at the governor's office, but the media reports really haven't covered how the decision may change the way school leaders and custodians of records uh, for Missouri public school districts um, respond to Sunshine Law requests for records. I think probably the best place to start is to give you a little bit of an explanation of the request that was made at the governor's office and how they responded. And I have to kind of lay out these facts that are a little bit tedious, so bear with me here, but it's worth it because it will help you understand what your obligations are under the Sunshine Law and responding to records requests going forward. So in this case, uh, a requester made two public records uh, requests of the governor's office in 2018. The first request asked for any and all records, communications, documents, emails, reports, and other material sent from or received by the governor's office from 27 specific individuals and or entities or thereabouts during a particular date range. The requester also asked for a waiver of all fees associated with responding to the request and then added that if you if you don't waive the fee, please let me know uh, if there are any search or copying fees that exceed $100. So the governor's office responded and it said, okay, we are in the process of gathering the records that are responsive to your request and anticipate that we will be able to provide a response or a cost estimate, if applicable, for the records you have requested in approximately one month. We will contact you at that time. So about a month goes by and the governor's office sent a follow-up response to the requester that stated, we have found uh, 13,659 documents that may be responsive to your request. The estimated cost for providing these records is $3,618.40 and see the attached invoice. And then it added, uh, once we receive this amount, we estimate it will take at least 120 business days to complete this request. We will send you records on a disk. So they attached the invoice, and the invoice basically estimated the number of hours that were going to be required to put together the response to this request at, at like 90 hours, and they labeled that research slash processing time. Uh, later, we learned that, that that was actually staff attorney time at the rate of $40 per hour, and that's how they got to the total amount that was in excess of $3,600. So when the requester got the invoice, he responded and, and asked the governor's office to reconsider waiving the fees. He also asked for a further explanation of the fees that were being charged. And he pointed out to them under the Sunshine Law that there's a requirement that the governmental body produce copies using the employees that result in the lowest amount of charges and that charges for clerical work cannot exceed the average hourly rate of pay for clerical staff. The requester also informed the governor's office that the Sunshine Law requires that when a governmental body fails to grant access to public records immediately, 
immediately, it must give a detailed explanation of the cause for further delay and the place and earliest time and date the records will be available. The requester then sent a second Sunshine Law request to the governor's office asking for records sent by or to the governor's office staffers involving the office's response to his first request. So that's our second request in the case, and the governor's office responded and indicated that there, it would provide a response and cost estimate to that second request within 10 days. So a couple of weeks go by, and the governor's office provides records in response to the second request, and it does so in two sets. And the first set has about 17 pages, and there are two pages that are redacted. Second set has about 40 pages, none of which were redacted. The governor's office did not provide any response at all to the first request. At this point, the requester filed suit making claims that the governor's office response violated the Sunshine Law in a number of different ways. The trial court dismissed those claims, basically saying that the requester hadn't stated a claim under the law. The case makes it w its way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided earlier this week that the requester had stated a claim for violations under the Sunshine Law and went into the very specifics about uh, how the governor's office had violated the Sunshine Law potentially, based on the allegations at least, in handling the Sunshine Law request. So with me today to dive into this one are two of my partners here at Ed Council, Emily Amahundro and Tom Smith. Welcome, Emily and Tom. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, uh, I've kind of given a, a little bit of a recitation of the facts here, but okay, let's dial into this one and see if we can break it down some of the court's analysis to get to some practical tips for our listeners as to how they may want to, to look at their responses to Sunshine Law requests in the future based on this particular decision this week. Maybe the best way to do it is just to open it up to both of you, ask you, you know, what do you think this case will mean for Missouri Public Schools? In other words, uh, as school leaders and custodians of records are, are you know, responding to requests in the future, what is it that they need to be thinking about differently based upon what the Missouri Supreme Court decided this week? So to start us off, I think I will ask Tom, you know, let's just talk big takeaways and we'll break them down one at a time. But, you know, you know what did you take away from this decision? Well, you know, the first big takeaway that I saw has to do with fees. What fees are we charging? If you look at the, the history of this case, when it was up on appellate review, the court in that instance really made a distinction between what types of fees could be charged based on the type of record. Uh, it talked about actual paper copies of records versus electronic records. And there's two subsections under the uh, the statute in the Sunshine Law 610.026.1. And they deal with the, the types of fees that can be charged. And what the appellate court said was subsection one applies when someone's asking for uh, paper copies or the records that are being maintained are, are in physical paper form. But if they're being maintained electronically, then subsection two applies. And the reason that was important was because, like I said, there's different types of fees and different amounts of fees that you can charge under each of those subsections. 
So when it makes its way up to the Supreme Court, one thing I was looking for was the court specifically addressing that issue. And they really didn't go into very much detail about the, the distinction there. Instead, they kind of took a different approach and a different interpretation of that statute and said it's not about at least the, the reading from that I got from the case or the analysis is that it's not about whether the record itself is maintained in the physical form or an electronic form. Subsection one talks about what happens when people are requesting copies of records. And subsection two, it talks about what happens when someone is just requesting access to, to come in and look at the record and then maybe decide they want copies once they've looked at it. Uh, they don't go into a, a whole lot of detail about that but they do, you know, they make it a point in one of the footnotes to talk about how the Sunshine Law makes a distinction between inspection and copying. And it all, they cite to several different parts of the, the entire, all the statutes that make up the Sunshine Law that talk about inspection and copying. So when that appellate opinion first came down, it really created an issue because, I mean, on the practical side, most school districts, most public entities are maintaining things in electronic form. And so if you're saying that what, like the appellate court did, that you can't charge certain fees if the records are maintained electronically, that drastically reduced the things that could be charged for. Okay, let me uh, stop you there, Tom. I mean, so basically what, when, with the appellate court uh, decision in place, there was a real question of whether or not we could charge research time for retrieving electronic records. Is that kind of the upshot of the... It, of, of the Court yeah. of Appeals decision. Okay. Now, with this Missouri Supreme Court decision, that analysis was kind of taken away. Is that fair? Right. That that uh, distinction that the appellate court made, it, it's it's not there anymore. That that goes away and we're left with what the Supreme Court said about. Okay. And so are we able to charge for research time if we're just talking about just electronic records? Yes, I think we can. Um that's something that if someone's asking for a copy of the record, whether it's physical or electronic, then research time would be included in that. Now, you can't, you can't charge for attorney research time. I mean, that was the, the clear holding of the case. Uh, but you can charge for research time for electronic records, I think. Okay. Well, let's get it. Uh, you know, the headlines uh, on this particular case this week really kind of emphasize the attorney uh, time on uh, and charging for attorney time and responding to Sunshine Law requests. Tell us what they said about that. Well, what you can't do is charge for uh, the time spent by an attorney reviewing the uh, reviewing a record to determine if anything in the record needs to be redacted or if the entire record needs to be withheld because it's a closed record. That is really what the court focused on on that particular point and said, you, you cannot charge for attorney time because it's not research time under the first subsection, and it's not going to be what's termed staff time under the second subsection. Uh, and there's a little bit in the analysis about what, you know, wh how we have to maintain records to keep them separated. Uh, that's another takeaway about it that we can talk about. But what the court really said was that it's not research time because you're not researching anything. You're reviewing documents and redacting them. And it's not staff time, as that's traditionally uh, considered to be, because you're not, you're not reviewing records in order to provide uh, 
access someone access to come in and look at that record. You're reviewing it to redact it. So it doesn't qualify as staff time under the, the second subsection either. And therefore you cannot charge for attorney time spent reviewing documents. Okay. And I think most of our school districts were not charging for attorney time. We had kind of uh, steered them away from that over, over time, but um, you know, to the extent that anybody may have been trying to collect that as a part of a response to a Sunshine Law request, attorney time is not going to be permitted clearly under this case. Um, yeah. Other takeaways about fees, anything else there that you think we need to, to be talking about? Well, I think we need to keep in mind that, you know, even if attorney time to review documents isn't going to be allowed to be charged to someone, um, we still can charge for certain things. When that, like I said, when they're electronic records, you can still charge for the time spent finding records that are responsive to the request. Can't charge for the redaction time, but actually researching and finding those records, that is still something you can charge for, even though they're maintained electronically. Uh, so if you have those requests that come in that span multiple years, they are very wide in their scope of what they're looking for. Uh, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, we see where people will submit those things uh, in an effort to harass districts to try to create more work for them. In those particular situations, now we're able to say, okay, that's fine. We want to grant access, we want to be transparent, but here's the amount of fees that you're going to have to pay for us to go through that and find all those documents for you. And I think that can really help a, a district try to um, kind of maintain a little bit of a little bit of control and a little bit of um, normalcy to their day where they don't have to take a staff member and have them spend their entire day for days, weeks trying to dig through documents to respond to a Sunshine Law request. Okay. All good points, I think, on fees there, Tom. So that's kind of our takeaways about fees. I'm going to turn to you, Emily, and, and uh, ask you the same thing. You know, what were the big takeaways for you? And like I said, we'll just break them down one at a time. Uh, what stuck out to you? I think one of the things that really stuck out to me was um, the discussion about how we have to notify a requester of when records are going to be available. I think we've gotten used to um, getting a request and then especially a big request and trying to calculate um, what that cost is going to be. And then um, saying, you know, from the day that you make payment to the district for the cost of this request, we anticipate that it will take X number of days or X number of weeks um, to provide the documents. And in the Supreme Court case, the governor's office, as you noted, Dwayne said, once you pay us this 3,000 some odd dollars, it'll take approximately 120 days, at least 120 days from the date of payment to produce. And the court said, um, that's not specific enough. So, um, you know, they go back to that statutory language that says, you know, if access to the public record isn't granted immediately, um, custodian of records has to give a detailed explanation of the cause of delay and the place and earliest time and date that the record's going to be available for inspection. So in reading that case, um, I think we can say definitively that we're not able to tell the requester 
um, anything vague about the timeline under which they would be able to access the records. And we also need to give an exact um, date. So what, um, you know, Tom and I and had a discussion about this earlier. And so I think that the best practice for districts going forward, instead of giving that sort of nebulous timeline is going to be assuming that someone would have been able to pay the cost of the record request on the date that they made it. Um, how many days is it going to take the district to respond? So if we know it's going to take us 10 days to gather the records, we would say, you know, you gave us this records request on July 1st and we can produce the records on July 11th if payment in the amount of, you know, $110 is made today. So I think that we need to be, we need to create that specificity um, in accordance with this case. Yeah, and I, you know, when I read that, um, what I sat there thinking was, okay, how are we, some of these are so voluminous that how do you project a timeline or you know how long it's going to take you to put all that stuff together uh, and find it even. So I think um, you know Thomas had a lot more experience in dealing with these heavy hitter <laughs> requests than I have. But what I've seen uh, uh, the strategy that I think works well for custodians of records would be to when we get that request we look at it and let's say it's asking for three years of documents. Well, and we know we need to do an electronic search. Well, why don't we do a search for a week, a week's worth of those documents, and then we can multiply that out across the period of time that's being requested. So I think that that's probably the most certain way to try to create that sort of timeline, because we know that if the records are that are requested are for three years and it takes us an hour to, to search for one week's worth of records, well, that's 52 times three times the hour that it took. So we could we could multiply it out from there. Um, so I think that that's probably the best strategy that we can use in order to create a reasonable uh, timeline and then also to document how we got there so that if there is a complaint, we can say, well, hey, we got your request. We performed the search. We did, you know, kind of the microcosm, the microcosm version of it, and this is how we reached that calculation. And I think it's going to be difficult for um, a court or an attorney general or the attorney general's office to find some sort of fault with that if we can demonstrate how we got there. That's all good stuff. I like that strategy a lot. Um, it will take it take the time to kind of come up with that snapshot. Um, but, um, you know, I think that's probably at least something that you can justify, you know, why it's going to be, uh, three months hence, six months hence, whatever it may be. Right. Um, so that's good. I like that strategy. Tom, I mean, Emily mentioned something that I want to come to you on and, and that is about, um, the, uh, explanation of a delay. And, uh, you know, that's one piece of the sunshine law that, that is, I mean, that's in the language of the statute itself, it says we've got to provide a detailed explanation of the delay if we don't provide the records immediately. Um, what was your uh, thought on that as, as, the, as the court dealt with that issue in this case? Well, I think we're going to have to be more detailed with our explanations. You, typically, what we're seeing is if the, the records aren't going to be available immediately or within those three business days, then districts will often say, you know, the, 
it's going to take additional time due to the scope of the large scope of your request and the amount of uh, potential responsive records. I don't think that by itself is going to be detailed enough anymore because the court, the, the governor's office said the explanation for the delay was that there, it was a voluminous request that was broad in scope and we calculated it out that here's how many responsive documents there are. Here's our rate of review per hour of the documents. And here's the percentage of time that the employee reviewing them is going to devote to that on a particular day. So they do that, they did that calculation and that's how they said, they arrived at the conclusion that these will not be available immediately. Uh, and that's the reason for the delay. And the court said, you know what? That might be a detailed explanation of the reason for the delay, but you did not communicate that to the requester. And therefore, the allegation that you violated the Sunshine Law by not providing a detailed explanation is enough to survive your motion for judgment on the governor's office motion for judgment on the pleadings. So I think the takeaway there for, for districts is that that kind of canned response that it's the scope of your request that is the reason for the delay isn't going to be enough anymore. The calculation that Emily just talked about I think we need to document that, as she said, and then put a version of that into our explanation for the delay. So when we're telling them the date that these records are going to be available, we're also telling them this is how we arrived at that date, and this is why it's going to take uh, longer than the three business days or to get you the records or to get you the records immediately. Excellent. I, I think those are good strategies. Um especially in the wake of this decision, as you said, Tom, in this particular instance on that first request, the governor's office, they really didn't provide any reason for the delay at, at all. They just said, we'll provide a response or a cost estimate uh, in approximately one month, but they didn't say why. Um, and so I think that that's, uh, you know, as to the detailed explanation, I guess we'll have to find out, you know, what <laughs> suffices there. But I would do exactly what you guys have suggested is, you know, kind of come up with that snapshot, figure out, you know, use that to extrapolate how long it's going to approximately take and then document that and then communicate it to the requester in terms of your detailed explanation. And, and those are hoops that not a lot of schools have been jumping through, in my estimation. Um, and so that's a, that's a sea change in how we approach these things, I think. You know, one other area of this case that I wanted to get into with you, Emily, is, a, is this issue about redactions. And, um, you know, the court kind of went through some analysis about that. Um, you know, what, what were your thoughts after having re read that part of the case? Well, my first thought was that it is a little confusing to the reader, <laughs> but um, so and in, in then looking at it again, um, you know, the court is what ended up happening is uh, the requester in his second request received documents from the governor's office and those documents had blacked out material in them um, so that to create redaction presumably because some of that information in those documents was closed because it was work product, attorney work product or attorney client privileged. But there wasn't anything that explained to the requester why 
there were parts that were removed and blacked out. So the court makes it pretty clear that if we are handing over a document that has open information and closed information in it, and we have redacted out the closed information, that we really need to describe what has been redacted or at least explain what the purpose of the redaction was. So the thing that comes to mind to me that happens most often for school districts is when someone makes a request for closed session board minutes and the closed session board minutes are a physical document that can be printed out. And we know that when we get that request that we have to provide that physical document, but that much of the material within the closed session minutes is going to have to be redacted. Whereas some of it becomes open, like hiring, firing, you know, discipline um, and promotion, for instance, is something that becomes open from a closed session after a period of time. So, but there may be other things that happen during closed session that stay completely closed in terms of motions and votes. So if we have those redactions within our closed session minutes, but some of the information that we're providing to the requester is open, for instance, like our motion to go into close and our motion to adjourn, those would stay open, then um, we would need to probably have a more detailed explanation about what has been redacted. So in my mind, if I'm redacting portions of closed session minutes, and in order to comply with what the court is telling us here, I think we would be perhaps making some notation out to the side of the redaction. For instance, if we had a student discipline matter that we were um, discussing as a board, we would redact that and then we would write the closed session exemption next to that uh, because we're explaining why that's been removed. So I think that that's what the court is getting at there, that we can't just redact and say it's redacted because it's redacted or it's redacted because it's closed and you should know that it's closed. We need to be able to explain what that closed session or closed portion exemption is in order to justify the redaction. Good. All good stuff, guys. Very uh, helpful, I think, to uh, everyone, in particular in the wake of this decision, because there are some things here that we are probably going to have to really uh, look hard at our practices in schools and try to try to make it conform with this decision, because I think there are some changes here. Um, so you've made some excellent points, you know, regarding fees and the requirement that we notify them of the date on when they're going to get the response to the records request. Also, uh, you know, making sure that we um, explain in detail the, the reason for the delay and if they're not going to be given those records immediately. And then finally, you know, those redactions and and how those are handled. So all good points. I appreciate you guys taking the time and appreciate your insights on this one. Um, and uh, we will be working through these requests, I'm sure, because as you both know, uh, we've been inundated with Sunshine Law requests that's in public school districts this spring. I don't think that's going to go away soon. Something that we'll have to work through here. And we thank you, the listeners, for taking the time today. And we hope you'll follow and share our Ed Council podcast on social media and subscribe to hear upcoming episodes of Ed Council Insights on current legal topics and issues related to school law. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, or you can just check us out on our website. Just Google Ed Council, E-D-C-O-U-N-S-E-L, one word, and you'll find us there. Glad we could be together. 
And thanks for listening to this edition of Ed Council Insights.